Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Maxwell was among Epstein's closest associates and helped him exploit girls who were as young as 14 years old. Maxwell played a critical role in helping Epstein to identify, befriend, and groom minor victims for abuse. In some cases, Maxwell participated in the abuse herself. In this series, I've looked at Ghislaine Maxwell, the partner of paedophile Jeffrey Epstein, through the two men in her life. Her father, who we discovered was working with many intelligence agencies, was also likely a major global money launderer. We also know that he stole hundreds of millions from his own company before his sudden and mysterious death. The journey I have taken trying to understand the relationships, finances and motives of her one-time partner, Jeffrey Epstein, has left me with more questions than answers. But it's likely that Epstein knew and possibly even worked with Ghislaine's father, Robert Maxwell. As well as the testimony of people I've interviewed in this series, a photo that was taken just days after her father's death in 1991 shows Ghislaine and Epstein looking longingly at each other, further suggesting that Ghislaine and Epstein knew each other long before it was commonly thought. Ghislaine could well have been a financial conduit between Maxwell Sr. and Epstein, but I don't believe Maxwell's money was a major contributor in Epstein's wealth. It could have played a small part, but too much of Epstein's finances are still so unclear. We also know Epstein was involved with some very powerful people in the world of global finance, a handful of whom were linked with the arms trade and intelligence organizations. One thing that is clear is that Epstein was a career con man, stealing from almost everyone he worked with. Perhaps he thought he could get away with it because he thought himself so very clever. Or perhaps he thought he could get away with it because the work he was doing wasn't entirely legal. Many of those wealthy individuals were asking him to tidy up their accounts and he was helping move funds offshore to tax havens via a complex network of foundations and charities. We also know that as Epstein's network grew to include princes and presidents, so did his wealth, and so did his sexual deviancy. But now it's time to look at Ghislaine's role in all of this. We do know that despite her denials, she is accused of recruiting girls for Epstein's sexual pleasure, particularly between the years of 1994 and 1997, but possibly all the way up to 2006, when she finally stopped working with him. One of Epstein's victims, Virginia Roberts Jeffrey, alleges that Ghislaine was Epstein's primary manager for recruiting and training girls for him, and that she also participated in the sexual abuse. Ghislaine has been accused by many of Epstein's victims of being an abuser and a facilitator in Epstein's paedophile ring, but we won't know the true extent of this 
until the summer of 2021, when she'll stand on trial for these crimes. Ghislaine has admitted that a very small part of her role in Epstein's life had been to find adult professional massage therapists for him. And she says that although she knew Virginia, she would barely remember her if not for all this rubbish. I know that Virginia is a liar, and I know that what she testified is a lie. I can only categorically deny everything she's said. So how much did Ghislaine know, and how much was she involved? Was she another of Epstein's victims, as her lawyers have suggested, or was she an instrumental cog in this factory of abuse? I'm Tom Pattinson, and this is Episode 6 of Ghislaine for Defiance. Robert Maxwell was incredibly protective of his favourite daughter, Ghislaine. When she was young, he would not allow her to bring boyfriends back to the family home of Headington Hall in Oxford, and he also forbade her from being photographed in the press on the arms of any boyfriend. Her father gave Ghislaine everything she wanted, and this life of privilege conditioned her into thinking powerful men were there to provide and protect her. It would shape every future relationship she was to ever have. Maxwell wanted his favourite daughter to marry into a noble family. The royal family, perhaps. After all, she was friendly with Prince Andrew, who was just a year her junior, and they'd been close since her university years, when they were in their late teens and early twenties. Maxwell encouraged an alliance with the hugely influential Kennedy family, but after a few dates, Ghislaine and JFK Jr., decided to remain platonic friends rather than anything more, something they remained until his death in a plane crash some years later. But she did engage in a relationship with the wealthy Count Gianfranco Cicogna, known as Italy's Rockefeller, between the years of 1986 and 1990. It was said that Gianfranco was very controlling over her, telling her how and where to get her hair cut and what to wear. Although it was serious, the couple were young and it didn't last. By now, Ghislaine had created something of a reputation of being a party girl. She was a flirt and she was someone who was not afraid of her sexuality. Alistair Campbell, when he was a journalist on Maxwell's Mirror newspaper, before he was British Prime Minister Tony Blair's communications director, once told an interesting story about Ghislaine. He was sent on an assignment to Paris with the 20-something heiress, She said how Paris had the best underwear shops in the world, and she took me on a little tour of them, said Campbell. I was asked for my view of what might look nice on her. We chose purple. It was a rather strange, though pleasant enough, way to pass a couple of hours before we headed back to London, he said. A 1997 article said that Ghislaine has always approached men in a spirit of adventure, and she'd been described as sexually self-assured in another early profile. She even held parties for her rich girlfriends to teach them about sex. At one fancy dinner party in her Manhattan home, she put dildos out at each place setting and taught her guests the fine art of how to give the perfect blowjob. But her sexual confidence wasn't always well received. Epstein's friend, Jesse Cornbluth, told of how in the 1990s he was at a party where Ghislaine came up to him and said, If you lose £10, I'll fuck you. 
whilst he was standing with his wife. Many of Epstein's victims have said Ghislaine was not just procuring girls for Epstein, but also involved in threesomes and orgies and would teach the girls exactly how to satisfy Epstein's sexual needs. But there is also a vulnerable side to Ghislaine. She was said to be totally in love with Epstein. She wore a diamond ring he gave her on her engagement finger and said she dreamt of marriage and kids. She would drop anything she was doing on his command and would jealously say to the other, younger girls, that she was the only person Epstein actually slept with. But even Ghislaine herself wasn't sure of her own status. When asked in court in 2015 whether she ever considered herself Epstein's girlfriend, she replied, Hmm, that's a tricky question. There were times when I would have liked to think of myself as his girlfriend. It's hard to understand what their relationship was really like. Could they have been some kind of Bonnie and Clyde where, instead of controlling and limiting each other's sexual fantasies, they would encourage each other to act them out until it spiralled out of control? What is clear is that as their wealth and network grew, they believed that they were invincible, that the rules and social norms that applied to the plebs, as she called the non-ultra-wealthy, simply didn't apply to them. Perhaps jetting around the world with presidents and dining at royal palaces detached them from reality. A recent article in Mother Jones quotes a long-term friend of Epstein's, who the author gives the alias Julie. It's an interesting insight into the relationship between Ghislaine and Epstein. At first, Geoffrey had a crush on Maxwell, but she blew him off and treated him like crap. Shortly after they met, Maxwell's father died after falling off his yacht, as Julie put it. Maxwell was an emotional wreck. And it was here that Epstein went in for the kill, in Julie's words. Apparently it worked. And even though he would soon become bored and done with her, Epstein continued to take advantage of Maxwell's emotional vulnerability and eventual attachment. According to Julie, the remainder of their relationship was built on resentment, mutual jealousy and a toxic codependency. He resented her for rejecting him when she didn't need him, and now that she did, he was going to exploit it. She used him, and he used her, and that's where this whole sexual production line came in, Julie said. She needed to be essential for him. Recruiting girls is how she kept her place. She had value for it. She ran his house. I don't doubt Epstein was abusive towards Ghislaine. Not necessarily sexually, but certainly mentally. Witnesses claim that he used to call her stupid and fat and too old for him to want to sleep with, often in front of guests or other girls. He was the only person who could make her cry, they said. He was mean to her in the end. When he wanted her gone, he called her brain dead and he'd be rude to her in front of people, Julie said. It made my skin crawl and I didn't even like her. Treating anybody like that is just not right. Whatever strange relationship Epstein and Ghislaine had through the 1990s, it was over by the end of the decade. And by the time of Vicky Ward's Vanity Fair article in 2003, Epstein said she had been upgraded from a girlfriend to best friend. When a relationship is over, 
The girlfriend moves up, not down, to friendship status, Epstein said. Although Ward's 2003 article said Ghislaine wasn't employed by Epstein, Ghislaine's lawyers have since stated that she was, in fact, employed by both Epstein and several of his affiliated businesses between the years 1999 and 2006. Flight logs also show she was a regular passenger on his plane until 2006, where their relationship finally came to an end. It's believed that their romantic relationship, which started at least in early 1992, if not before, was over by 1999. A court indictment from this year states that their intimate relationship existed just between 1994 and 1997. This tallies up with a private email Ghislaine sent to Epstein on January the 25th, 2015, when she asked him to help her distance herself from him. The email said, I would appreciate it if Shelley would come out and say she was your girlfriend. I think she was from end 99 to 2002. Another source I spoke to verified that during this period, Epstein did have a girlfriend called Shelley, who seemed to be around more than the others. Ghislaine stopped working for Epstein in 2006 after he was charged for his sexual abuse and was never seen with him again. But it was this email that proved Ghislaine was still in touch with Epstein much later than initially claimed. Ghislaine said they had no contact after their split in 2006, and her lawyers in the US and the UK said, in a bid to distance her from Epstein, that they hadn't spoken in over a decade. But due to a number of civil lawsuits that were brought against Ghislaine in 2015 and 16, which argued she was involved in Epstein's sexual abuse, Ghislaine did communicate with Epstein by email. Ghislaine's email asked him to go public about his other girlfriends, so that not all the pressure was exclusively focused on her. It was met with a response from Epstein, saying, Okay with me? You've done nothing wrong, and I'd urge you to start acting like it. Go out. Head high. Not as an escaping convict. Go to parties. Deal with it. Furthermore, Epstein paid at least some of the legal fees of Ghislaine's court cases between 2015 and 2017. After her romantic split from Epstein in 1999, although still on his payroll, Ghislaine started spending more time in California, and by the early to mid-2000s, she was in a relationship with Ted Waite. Waite was much richer than Epstein and lived in a huge beachfront home in La Jolla, Southern California, Ghislaine helped him buy a mega yacht called Plan B, which was equipped with a helipad, jacuzzi, gym, and an onboard submarine. It was with this submarine that she obtained her submarine pilot's license, and from this yacht that she reignited her love of the ocean. Ted Waite made his money from Gateway, a computer hardware company, and was one of the richest and youngest self-made millionaires in the United States at the time. His wealth peaked in around 2002 after he sold over a billion dollars worth of shares in his company. According to the New York Times, when he met Miss Maxwell, Waite had a stringy, greying ponytail and wore drab suits. After she became his girlfriend, Waite shaved his head, started wearing tinted glasses and became a virtual doppelganger for Jason Statham, they wrote. Ghislaine was still with Waite in 2010 as she accompanied him as his guest to Chelsea Clinton's wedding in August of that year. But before the end of the year was out, they were to split. Following that split from Waite, Ghislaine had other boyfriends, 
Nice, normal, prosperous, good-looking guys, said a friend. And the next prosperous, good-looking guy was Scott Borgerson, who she met through her ocean preservation charity she set up in 2012 called Terramar. The privileged life of Ghislaine meant she never really had to work hard. She leapt from wealthy father to wealthy lover to wealthier lover. Despite never needing to work behind a bar to pay the rent, this didn't stop her setting up businesses when she was young. After graduating from Oxford University, Ghislaine landed the job that every British man could only dream of. She took over as a director of a football club that her father owned. Oxford United may have been languishing in a lower league then, but few 21-year-olds would have had an opportunity to run a football club at such a young age. But football wasn't her thing, and shortly afterwards, she set up a company supplying corporate gifts, a company her father bankrolled. Following that, in the late 1980s, she set up the Kit Kat Club, a social networking group for women in the arts, in politics, and generally well-to-do women of standing. It was bright, wealthy society women. Nowadays, it seems quite normal to be going to a meeting just for women. But 30 years ago, it seemed quite exciting, said the author Anna Pasternak, who attended several of the meetings. Ghislaine, she remembers, was poised, clever, extremely chic, very mindful of who you were, your status, your importance. I think it was more of a way of advancing herself, making contacts that could be useful to her, Pasternak once told The Telegraph. There was always a side to her that you would never know. If what is said about her now being so shockingly disloyal to women is true, it's a great betrayal, she said. Then, suddenly, her life was thrown into chaos with the unexpected death of her father. No more was Daddy bankrolling her hobby projects. No more directorships of football clubs. She became persona non grata in the UK. And more importantly, she had no one to fund her lifestyle. Her role as leading society lady was over, and the Kit Kat Club was no more. Ghislaine fled the UK and turned up in New York, where she very briefly moved into a cheap apartment and was knocking on doors trying to get some business consultancy work. But she reconnected with Epstein, whose advances she had spurned before her father's death. But now, broken, emotional and vulnerable, she let him in. Or in actual fact, he let her in to his New York City mansion. From then until 2006, Epstein was her sole employer, where she seemingly worked exclusively for him, as there's no indication that she embarked in any other paid work during the 15 years she was with Epstein, first as a lover and later a fixer. Her role with Epstein is also unclear. She was the organiser of his social and allegedly his sexual life, but was not his personal assistant. That role was occupied by Leslie Groff. Groff managed his daily schedules, liaising with CEOs and setting up his business meetings. She was also named in the 2008 non-prosecution agreement, which Epstein's legal team negotiated after his first arrest to keep his colleagues and co-conspirators out of court. Groff has not been accused of being involved in any abuse or the recruitment of minors, but Jennifer Earls, who was recruited from outside her high school by another of Epstein's staff members, and has filed a lawsuit against Ghislaine 
was told to wait in Miss Groff's office when she went to see Epstein. And victim Sarah Ransom has said it was Groff who arranged travel for the girls and also once told Ransom to slim down. Groff was fiercely loyal and Epstein said she was an extension of his brain. But people who know her told me she was neither aware of any wrongdoing, financial or otherwise, that she was just one of a number of in-house staff that included attorneys, accountants, butlers and office managers. Bizarrely, as well as the large number of in-house staff at his Manhattan home that Epstein was so proud of, he also had premises on Madison Avenue, where witnesses told me he had hundreds of workers beavering away on computers. What they were doing is still unclear. Whether it's his personal assistant, an in-house accountant, or one of the hundred or more skull-capped workers sitting in his Madison Avenue offices, no one has yet come out to explain exactly what work Epstein was doing. Ghislaine left Epstein's employment in 2006 when it became clear that there was a case being made against him by the FBI. She was already spending most of her time with Waite in California by then, and she wasn't seen with Epstein in public ever again. However, a cryptic answer phone message left by Ghislaine to Epstein in 2005 implied that she may still have been procuring underage girls for him. He has a teacher for you to teach you Russian. She is two times eight years old, not blonde. Lessons are free, and you can have your first lesson today if you call. Spending so much time with Waite on his yacht in the Pacific Ocean, Ghislaine's interest in the seas was revived. She'd always spent time on the ocean, having learned how to dive aged just nine years old. In the 1980s, she spent a lot of time on her father's yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, named after her. Also, Ghislaine would call up the captain of the Limitless on occasion and ask to use the yacht that was owned by billionaire Les Wexner, Epstein's number one client. It's also claimed she planned a mission to find the plane and body of Amelia Earhart. It's not doubted that the sea was her passion. And she put that passion into practice in 2012 when she started the Terramar Project, an ocean charity that the National Geographic Society described in 2014 as one of a community of organisations successfully building critical mass for good communications on ocean issues. Its mission was to create a global ocean community that concerned itself with the 64% of oceans that lie in international waters and that are not the responsibility of any government, it claimed. In 2013, a UK subsidiary of the charity was registered and Ghislaine that year went to two UN meetings to discuss the project. She would go on to speak at the UN about the project at least nine times. Also in 2013, Ghislaine spoke nervously to an audience of presidents and diplomats, dignitaries and conservationists at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Iceland. Her first public speaking engagement since the Epstein revelations. Voice trembling. Her nonsensical presentation was rambling, repetitive and something more expected from a junior high school student than a speaker at a global conference. You need to have economic values. There's no question we need to uh, eat and make money and do these things, but I believe we can and have a sustainable ocean and a sustainable Arctic uh, and make money. Uh, and so the job of the Terramar Project is to create an, a global ocean community. So we created a pledge, and it's called the I Love the Ocean Pledge. It's relatively easy to sign. You go in, you say, I love the ocean. I will spread my love of the ocean with my family and friends. 
and I would like the ocean to be managed sustainably. I encourage you all to go to the website, do that, and then it so happens you then get a passport that makes you a joint citizen of land and sea, and you become, a, uh, you get a Terramar passport. Also speaking at that event was Scott Borgerson, who would soon be listed as a Terramar board member. In 2014, Ghislaine and Borgerson spoke together about the project at a Council on Foreign Relations event in Washington, D.C., and, as well as a lecturer at the University of Texas, Ghislaine also took part in a TED Talk that year. I just want to go back briefly to talk to you about why I got involved in the ocean, and I, uh, because I think it's important to have history. So I started uh, diving when I was nine, having become passionate about the ocean, watching Jacques Cousteau on TV, and it led to a lifelong exploration around the ocean that ultimately ended with me becoming a deep worker submersible pilot. On one of my first submarine dives, I was absolutely so excited. I thought, my goodness, I'm going to see a new sea creature. I'm going to be this amazing explorer. And uh, off I was. I went down into the deep and I went down to over 1,500 feet. And at 1,500 feet, I switched on the lights, hoping to see a new mythical sea creature, but in fact what I saw was a plastic hanger. I was so absolutely devastated that it was at that moment that I realized that I was really going to dedicate the rest of my life to uh, taking uh, an involvement with and bringing an education around uh, the ocean. Ghislaine, who was the president of the charity, was speaking at some of the most prestigious institutions and events around the world. One only has to listen to her speeches to realise it was her privileged access and her extensive contacts that got her onto these influential platforms. The charity had no offices, it had no active projects, and was essentially conceptual claptrap rather than anything that had any physical aims or goals. Terramar was first registered at her New York home, then when she sold that property for $15 million in 2015, it was registered at the Massachusetts address of Borgeson. During the years 2012 to 2017, for which accounts are available, no grants were given out by Terramar, but it did have unusually high accounting and legal fees for an organisation of that size. It received $196,000 in public support and paid out $600,000 in expenses. And records show, by 2017, Ghislaine had loaned the organisation $549,000 Ghislaine's finances are nearly as murky as Epstein's. She had sold the house for $15 million in 2015, but we'd later find out that she had 15 bank accounts with balances ranging from hundreds of thousands to $20 million. Between 2017 and 2020, she had transferred hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time. We know she lost a number of civil lawsuits against her, and there were likely to be significant costs involved from that, but the rest remains a mystery. A number of Ghislaine's friends claimed that the organisation was nothing more than a personal reputation management project, something to rehabilitate her reputation rather than provide anything tangible to the oceanic cause. Then, in July 2019, less than a week after Jeffrey Epstein was arrested, the Terramar project closed down.
Ghislaine had split from Waite at the end of 2010. By 2013, she was in a relationship with Scott Borgeson. Borgeson ran a company valued at over $100 million in 2016 called Cargo Metrics, analyzing data on maritime trade. He was also heavily involved in a number of ocean conservation institutes and was a former fellow in residence of the think tank, the Council of Foreign Relations. He was described to one friend by Ghislaine as a former Navy SEAL, but in fact, his military experience was with the Coast Guard. Fourteen years her junior, they both were speaking at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik in 2013, and it wasn't long after that that Borgeson left his wife Rebecca and two kids, and Ghislaine had moved into his $3 million home. According to records from his 2014 divorce, Borgeson was accused of being physically violent, abusive, and extremely controlling. Two years later, the divorce was finalised. By 2016, Ghislaine had sold her New York townhouse, had removed herself from society, and was no longer photographed at public events. She moved in with Scott Borgerson in his Manchester-by-the-Sea home, just north of Boston. Whilst trying to rebuild her reputation as a conservationist, she was still fighting her past with Epstein. Between 2015 and 2017, she settled two court cases with victims who accused her of taking part in Epstein's sexual exploitation and of defamation. At least some part of those legal fees were paid by Epstein. Epstein, in fact, promised to pay legal fees for all of the co-conspirators named in the 2008 non-prosecution agreement. Sarah Kellen, Nadia Marchinkova, Adriana Ross, Leslie Groff, as well as Ghislaine, were named in that agreement. The other four all invoked the Fifth Amendment, using their right to remain silent and refuse to talk to prosecutors. They were granted immunity as part of that plea deal. Even with her Terramar project, the tide was turning against Ghislaine. The positive media she was getting for her oceanic conservation work was being drowned out by the waves of bad press that was directed at her because of her relationship with Epstein. By 2018, she fell completely off the radar. A Vanity Fair article tells of how a friend of Ghislaine's bumped into her on a commercial flight between Miami and New York in early 2018. She was evasive about where she was living, saying that she was living a little bit everywhere. Looking back, I personally think she knew that the ship was really about to go down, the friend said. We know she was travelling extensively between the Middle East, Europe and Asia between 2017 and 2019, but we don't know who with or what for. On July 6, 2019, Jeffrey Epstein was arrested after flying into the US from Paris. Five weeks later, 2,000 pages of court documents from a defamation case that Virginia Roberts Jeffrey had brought against Ghislaine in 2005 were made public. Ghislaine's name was everywhere. The following morning, Jeffrey Epstein would be found dead in his Manhattan jail cell, and all eyes were on Ghislaine. She was now the world's most wanted woman. She then left Borgeson's home and went on the run. In the days following Epstein's death, Ghislaine's name was occupying every front page in the country. 
law enforcement, lawyers and the media were all trying to get hold of the woman who held the secrets of this terrifyingly well-connected paedophile and someone who'd suddenly and suspiciously died in police custody. Then a photograph of her surfaced. Sitting alone, outside an in-and-out burger joint in California, casually eating a burger and fries, wearing a blue hoodie, having taken a dog on a walk. In her hand was a book titled The Book of Honor, The Secret Lives and Deaths of CIA Operatives by Ted Gupp. Why was she in California? Why would she be eating a burger, alone, in broad daylight, in public, without a care in the world? Was the book a secret message? What did it mean? Was it a threat, a warning? The internet went wild. Later analysis of the photo showed it wasn't taken by a random bystander, as was initially claimed. But a lawyer friend of Ghislaine's, Leah Safian, But the reasons behind why it was taken and why it was released are still not clear. Then she went dark again. From the summer of 2019, even her own lawyers claimed not to know where she was. But over the next 11 months, she'd be spotted all over the world. A former American police officer claimed to have seen her on the southern coast of Brazil. She had signed an affidavit in November 2019, listing her location as Half Moon Street in Mayfair, London. And someone said she was in the south of France, where her family owned a property. Or perhaps Northern California. Or Israel, maybe. One British tabloid even put out a £10,000 reward to find her. But she remained in the shadows. There were a number of reports of her being in Israel, and a source I spoke to said that she had been there, talking with the children and the relatives of former government officials. I reached out to one whom my source named, but perhaps unsurprisingly, I didn't get a response. When Epstein was in Israel in 2007, touring the military facilities before his sentencing, he was offered refuge in the country by his government contacts, but declined, instead choosing to return to the US to face the music. For more than a year, Ghislaine remained in hiding, supposedly moving from town to town, country to country. But doing what exactly, and seeing whom? The suggestion was that Ghislaine was preparing her insurance policy, doing a deal of some kind, speaking with key contacts, perhaps warning people she had dirt on, or those who owed her a favour. Was she setting up some kind of guarantee, so she didn't end up the same way Epstein did? She is the British socialite who became a confidant of a sexual predator. But when her friend Jeffrey Epstein died, Ghislaine Maxwell disappeared from view. That is, until now. At 8.30 this morning, she was arrested in Bradford, New Hampshire. 20 armed FBI agents raided the property on July 2nd, 2020 where they saw Ghislaine running from one room to another through a window. In the property, they found a mobile phone covered in tinfoil, which she presumably did in a bid to stop her phone being tracked. It was reported that former SAS soldiers, Britain's special forces, were guarding her home. The property she was found in had been bought in December 2019, just seven months before 
but just over a million dollars in cash through an anonymous company. The real estate agent told the FBI that the buyers for the house introduced themselves as Scott and Janet Marshall. Both had British accents. Scott Marshall told her he was retired from the British military and was currently working on a book. Janet Marshall described herself as a journalist. We have been discreetly keeping tabs on Maxwell's whereabouts as we worked this investigation. And more recently, we learned she had slithered away to a gorgeous property in New Hampshire, continuing to live a life of privilege while her victims live with the trauma inflicted upon them years ago. We moved when we were ready, and Miss Maxwell was arrested without incident. It was strongly implied by the FBI that they always knew where Ghislaine was for that year that the media and lawyers and everyone in the world was looking for her. According to the detention memo filed by the Southern District of New York upon her arrest, Ghislaine began hiding out in locations in New England in July 2019 and making intentional efforts to avoid detection, including moving locations at least twice, switching her primary phone number, which was registered under the name GMAX, and email addresses, and ordering packages for delivery with a different person listed on the shipping label. It was also revealed that Ghislaine had taken 15 international flights in the three years before her arrest to countries including Britain, Japan and Qatar. And it was revealed that Ghislaine had married. Her husband was not named, but it's widely thought to be the Scot she bought the house with, the Scot she was living with in Manchester-by-the-Sea, Scott Borgerson. There's been no actual evidence or records of her marriage, and it's only an assumption that it was Borgerson she married. The lack of physical evidence might be because of the paperwork being delayed, or because she married abroad, or it might be because she never actually did get married. But people don't always marry just for love. Moving money between husband and wife is much more straightforward, which might come in handy if there are more civil lawsuits filed against her, and there are fewer tax implications and inheritance issues to deal with between husband and wife. Plus, a husband can't be called to testify against his wife. Ghislaine was charged by the Manhattan US attorney with six counts, including conspiracy to entice minors to travel to engage in illegal sex acts, enticement of a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts, conspiracy to transport minors with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, transportation of a minor with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, and perjury. Maxwell was among Epstein's closest associates and helped him exploit girls who were as young as 14 years old. Maxwell played a critical role in helping Epstein to identify, befriend, and groom minor victims for abuse. In some cases, Maxwell participated in the abuse herself. And then bizarrely, just after she was arrested for sex trafficking minors, President Trump wished her well. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach, and I guess they lived in Palm Beach, uh, but I wish her well. On the 14th of July, 2020, Ghislaine's legal team proposed a $5 million bond and that she would remain in a hotel until her trial. During the two hours and 20 minute hearing at Manhattan's federal court, 
Ghislaine appeared via video link from the Metropolitan Detention Centre in Brooklyn. Wearing a brown prison-issue top and looking bedraggled, having not had a proper haircut for more than a year, she was denied bail on the grounds that her extensive international travel, three passports, and potential access to secret stashes of hidden cash made her a flight risk. Ghislaine entered a not-guilty plea to the six charges she faced, which date back to the years between 1994 and 1997. In the criminal case, she is alleged to have recruited and groomed and, in fact, abused and sex-trafficked underage victims to Jeffrey Epstein. In addition, Ms. Maxwell is charged with perjury. This is Gloria Allred, the attorney in charge of the civil case that a number of victims are making against Epstein's estate. In that testimony under oath that Ms. Maxwell gave, called a deposition, the uh, prosecutors are alleging that she perjured herself in some of her answers. So that is the criminal case uh, now pending against her. Ghislaine will remain in jail until her trial in July 2021. If charged, 58-year-old Ghislaine could face 35 years in jail. But experts think that she might be given a plea deal if she offers up the names of some of the other abusers in Epstein's circle. Most criminal prosecutions end with a plea deal at some point. And in the same way that it takes two to tango, it takes two parties to want to have a plea deal. So usually a plea deal is two lesser charges than the defendant is facing as a result of the indictment and prosecution. It's a complex decision that only the prosecutors can make. Of course, the prosecutors know that they have a very heavy burden in a criminal case, and their legal burden is to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And we never know. Just because a case is filed, that doesn't mean that the prosecutors will always be successful in proving their case beyond a reasonable doubt. It's always possible that a defendant can be acquitted. This is a high-profile case, and we just don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Ms. Uh, Maxwell certainly has entered a not guilty plea and has indicated that she's not guilty of all these charges against her. So she might be set up you know, to go to war, so to speak, to fight this all the way, to vindicate her reputation. If she thinks she has a possibility of doing that, we don't know. Sometimes there is a plea because sometimes the prosecution is looking to the defendant to provide evidence that they may never have otherwise been able to obtain about others who might have been involved in crimes. That's usually kind of a smaller fish who might provide evidence about a bigger fish. 
you know, Ms. Maxwell certainly was high on the list after Jeffrey Epstein. And we don't know if she would have evidence that would be sufficient that she could provide to the uh, to the prosecutors that would help her to negotiate a plea. No one is at this point really can predict if there will be a trial or not in this case. Both sides, defense and prosecution, need to prepare their case as though it is going to go to trial. And even if there is a plea later on, they have to be ready in case a plea never happens. Others think that, like Epstein, she might not make it to trial. It was reported that prison officials are so terrified someone will try to kill her that they are constantly moving her around inside the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. She's been constantly monitored, is sleeping on a bare mattress, and has been wearing paper clothes to ensure that she doesn't commit suicide. According to her lawyers, prison psychologists watch her for hours each day, making evaluations of her mental health, and she's surveilled 24 hours a day by cameras, guards and psychologists. I asked Ari ben Menashe, the former Israeli intelligence officer, what he thought might happen to Ghislaine. In my opinion, the powers to be would like her to go away, some one way or the other to go away. Who are the powers that be? The people that had Epstein arrested and her arrested. Others have suggested she might go into witness protection if she provides evidence against some of the hugely influential people who've been named in this scandal. This is what Stephen Hoffenberg Epstein's former employer at Towers Financial told me. Julianne Maxwell was the brains, the mastermind. She hasn't made a deal so far. They'd like to make a deal with her. That's guaranteed. So the question is if she ever sinks. I believe she will sink. And she'll be immediately put into witness protection. What happens next is anyone's guess. Last year, while Epstein was in jail awaiting trial, a tranche of thousands of documents were released from a previous court case providing details of the abuse. The next morning, he'd hanged himself. Tomorrow, while Ghislaine resides in jail awaiting trial, another tranche of documents will be released from another prior court case. I wonder what I'll wake up to in the morning. This show was written and narrated by myself, Tom Pattinson. Additional production and sound design was by Danny Knowles, and Peter McCormack was the executive producer. I'd like to thank all of the people I've spoken to on and off the record in the research of this series, and also the journalists at the many publications that I've used in my research. Special thanks to those at the Miami Herald, the New York Times, Vanity Fair and Mother Jones, and many, many others who furnished me with reams of incredible information to try to learn from. However, any and all mistakes made are entirely my own work. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest place to buy and sell Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. I'm Tom Pattinson. Head over to defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films.